person who wishes to parade or hold a meeting is quite at liberty to do so, provided he holds it other than in an area specified in the order made by the minister. We are the people of Derry, and we intend marching in our city. We welcome you, sir. But civil, civil liberties, I really and thought they came here for. Yeah. Then get the civil liberties, get Jerry yeah. Fitton and the rest of the men who's organized them. Here, here. October the 5th, 1968, in Derry when a startled world saw television pictures of police battening a civil rights march in Duke Street and using water cannon indiscriminately. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association had been founded the previous year by anti-sectarian reformers from a variety of labour, trade union, social, republican and independent groups. The events of October the 5th in Derry gave new impetus to protest and was, in the words of Stormont Prime Minister Captain Terence O'Neill, the match to tinder, tinder which had been piling up for years. Austin Curry. In 1946, my parents and uh, four of us, of uh, whom I was the eldest, lived uh, between Coal Island and Dungannon uh, in a two-roomed house without any water, without any facilities, and, of course, a lot of overcrowding. Uh, and a council house, a house belonging to Dungan District Council, became vacant about 100 yards away. It had it was a three-bedroom house. It had all the amenities. My father decided to apply for this house. He got on his bicycle. He rode 16 miles to the house of uh, the then chairman of Dungan District Council, uh, Mr Moses Busby. And he explained his housing need to Mr. Bosby, and as my father had been advised, he also produced one of the big old white five-pound notes, which he gave to Mr. Bosby. Mr. Bosby put it in his top pocket and said, Mr. Curry, I agree you badly need a house. You're living in bad conditions, and I make you this promise you will get the first house vacated by one of your own kind. My father got on his bike and he rode the 16 miles back to the old engine bridge and he knew his chances of getting a council house were nil. My father was part of the system, Moses Busby uh, was part of the system. In 1968, when the house was allocated in the village of Caledon to a 19-year-old unmarried girl, while 269 other people were on the waiting list, and the great majority of those far, far more in need of a house than uh, Miss Emily Beatty. Uh, Miss Emily Beatty uh, was part of the system, and the councillor, Mr Scott, who allocated the house in Caledon, was part of the system as well. Uh, but things haven't changed. In those from 1946 to 1968, those 22 years. The only difference, really, I suppose, was that I then was the MP for East Tyrone and was capable of doing something about it. This allocation of the house to a 19 year old uh, unmarried girl was, of course, a blatant example of the then system. 
And I tried, as the MP for East Tyrone, through the normal political channels that uh, any member of parliament would use uh, to have uh, this injustice, injustice remedied. The usual thing, like parliamentary questions, representation to the minister, indeed representations to the prime minister, who was then Terence O'Neill, uh, adjournment debate being thrown out of the house and that sort of thing. But I found that uh, there was no way in which this injustice was going to be remedied through the normal political channels. And that's why I took the action which I did in the village of Caledon and squatting in that house, and why I then became involved in the organisation of the first civil rights march. Over the years, housing grievances went largely unreported, but there were exceptions. In 1961, Provincial News Roundup went to Newry to investigate the allocation of 16 houses to policemen. The fact that when I asked Mr Whiteside why all policemen should get these houses, he says, well, no one else can afford them. Well, what's the point in building houses if the ordinary man in the street can't afford them? Mr Whiteside is the man who had the final say. Yes, but uh, believe you me, Mr Whiteside is a very impartial man. And uh, when I asked him, was the houses let on a 60-40 basis, well, he said he couldn't get anyone that would interest me. Well, I it believed him. you in your capacity yes. as a member of the committee that allocates the houses? That's true. Mm. Well, now, here we have Councillor Jim Andrews. Well, <coughs> I think that the reason that these 16 policemen got the houses were that they can afford to pay their rent. In fact, I seconded Mr. Whiteside's proposal that they get these houses, knowing that there was at least seven of those policemen were going to vacate uh, council houses of a cheaper rent. Thereby, they were leaving those houses available for working-class people who could really afford to pay that rent and couldn't afford to pay the £2.14 a week. Similar discrimination in Dungannon in 1963 led Mrs. Patricia McCluskey and her doctor husband, Con, into activity in the Homeless Citizens League. Success in getting homes for 35 families pitchforked them into more intensive campaigning. It was good to be able to help, but of course that only led to an absolute flood of letters from all over the place asking us to come and see how they were living. And on our half day we used to go and visit quite a lot of the people. And it, it was worse through the country than it even was in Dungannon because most of them were living with parents and things but the housing through the country was very very poor up the valley we lot up by Ballygawley the Clogher Valley, Clogher valley. Mm. and then people got the idea that if you you could get something like houses for people you could solve all their problems so they began to write us pathetic and pitiful letters about all the things that were wrong and all the injustices that were being suffered and that was why we formed the Campaign for Social Justice in Northern Ireland. And all we ever wanted and uh, to, to really fix was a house letting on a point system, one man, one vote, so that people could really express themselves in the ballot box. And uh, the, um, oh yes, uh, jobs. You can terrific dis discrimination in jobs. Mm, yeah. And we, we highlighted that too. And we, is, is tried to get the f correct figures for everybody that was working and that was a very difficult thing to do. So we started to gather our, our facts and indeed it was difficult enough to get them because most people were afraid to supply us with facts and we had uh, we produced uh, 
questionnaire forms and we circulated them to various people and the, the people didn't there were no, no, none of them had to sign them, and strangely enough, many of them didn't even hand them to us. We would hear uh, at night when we'd be looking at the television or a plop uh, in, our, in our front hall when somebody slipped a piece of a document uh, through the letterbox, and that was another set of statistics. And we were, the nationalists unfortunately, not been terribly well schooled, were very poor at this kind of thing, and they very often issued wrong statistics, and of course the unionists, much better educated and in better circumstances, shot them down. We were determined that that would never happen to us, and it never did. So you put it all together in the plain truth? We did. And then you had to choose the people to whom to send it? Yes, well, we, we circularized, gradually we circularized all the MPs and uh, of all the parties, we sent uh, documents to America, to very sympathetic people there. And in the end, uh, Paul Rose uh, and uh, supported and aided and abetted by Jerry Fitt got the campaign for democracy in Ulster going and Jerry Fitt uh, was splendid in presenting our facts. And now when people are not uh, so favourable to expose to Jerry Fitt, it must be said that Jerry Fitt was the first who stood up in Parliament and let the facts be known, and we bombarded him with facts. He knew they were correct, and he and Paul Rose and some of their other left-wing uh, uh, Labour uh, members uh, together uh, fought our case, but unfortunately the top echelons of the Labour Party were most unhelpful and very timid and wouldn't do the thing, wouldn't stand up to, to the Unionists, and as it happened, uh, the only people who ever stood up to the Unionists were the, the Tories, people like Edward Heath and uh, William Whitelaw. Ivan Cooper, one of the few Protestants prominent in the movement, recalls his early involvement in civil rights issues in Derry. I was born and brought up uh, about 10 miles from Derry City. Uh, from a very early age, I had been going to the bog side from the age of 12, where I befriended uh, a lad called Dermot McLenaghan in Wellington Street in the heart of the bog side. I played uh, football there and I made a number of friends. Later on, I went into the shirt industry and then, of course, you met the woman of Derry. Uh, who went out to work whilst their husbands stayed at home. But those women were a living symbol of the deprivation and the injustice which existed in Derry. Uh, I got involved through my friend of 12 years of age, Dermot McLennan, and I got involved in uh, housing problems initially. And in those days, people were living in absolutely deplorable conditions in the bog side. The Unionist Corporation wouldn't build houses because at that time, you got a vote uh, if you became a tenant of a house or a property owner. So therefore they didn't build any houses because houses meant votes and votes meant that the gerrymandering of Derry uh, would go out of the hands of the unions. Kevin Boyle, former professor of law at UCG and now head of Article 19, the international body against censorship, returned to Queen's University in 1967 to lecture. But you were looking at a time in the, in, in the 60s that there was no Bill of Rights that the, um, uh, the Government of Ireland Act, which was the Constitution uh, established in the 1920s, had, was based on the old British premise that, you do, that, that if you had a grievance, then you, you took it up with your MP. And since a government 
uh, might always get kicked out in an election. It had to be concerned with dealing with grievances. But that theory didn't apply in Northern Ireland, where you had uh, a party that was in permanent power and knew it was in permanent power. I think it, it is extraordinary that if you look at any, any volume of the Northern Ireland parliamentary debates, the so-called Hansard, or from the 1920s onwards, every issue that was raised on the streets of Derry and Belfast and in the whole civil rights campaign in the late 60s was is all there. Concern with electoral discrimination, uh, the absence of uh, one man, one vote, or one person, one vote at local government, the Special Powers Act and the discriminatory use of that and repressive use of that, the uh, concern with the political control of the police, uh, discrimination in employment in public and private sectors, all of those issues were raised constantly by nationalist MPs down the years. Um, but the government of the Stormont government, the Unionist Party government, was totally impervious because there was no, there was no risk to them. In the, you know, they didn't have to respond to these. Um, so uh, I think, to make the point, um, it is a remarkable feature of what happened in Northern Ireland that there was no effort to use the courts and it's, it, is, it is arguable that if there had been remedies available in the courts, I know it's, I know it's rewriting history and so-called if-only history, but it, it is worth making the observation that we may not have seen the violence that we saw. Because if some of the issues that were raised uh, and, and were remedied after demonstrations, like legislation on discrimination, like the abolition of the local housing authority powers and the creation of the housing executive, and so forth. If those issues had been highlighted and responded to uh, through court cases, through a challenge in the courts, then demonstrations may not have uh, resulted. And in turn, the reaction to demonstrations, uh, which is w and, and the resulting violence. I know it's uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory which, which is a, you cannot <laughs> you cannot prove it in the nature of things. But Northern Ireland was a place throughout its history, up to the 60s, where there was no real concept of protection against abuse of power. There was a minority population which had been brought into a state that it didn't want to be part of, um, and a majority that was, uh, saw itself as a minority on the island as a whole, was in, uh, uh, reflected a siege mentality, thought the only way to keep power was to uh, keep all power in its hands. And the, the law was irrelevant from the point of view of protection. Absolutely irrelevant. But there were changes. The old order in the person of Lord Brookborough had been replaced. Captain Terence O'Neill was Prime Minister at Stormont. He had made history by meeting Sean Lamass and afterwards Jack Lynch. He campaigned on a non-sectarian basis and saw himself as a liberal reformer, though he was slow to move. Expectations were raised, however, as Bernadette and Paddy Devlin outline. A number of things, I think, that came to a head around that time. Uh, we had, at the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, the economic growth, the economic boom in Britain, which incidentally reduced or produced the large intake of people uh, encouraged to come in from the British colonies to take up employment in Britain, people from Jamaica, the West Indies, uh, because there were simply not enough people in Britain to deal with the growing employment opportunities. 
and similarly there was major expansion in Northern Ireland with the coming of big companies, uh, big international companies, uh, American, European. Uh, and so you had a position, in fact, where east of the river, if you were talking about Antrim, Ballymena, uh, and parts of Derry, uh, unemployment figures were falling to less than 5% in localised areas. But right throughout that, unemployment in strong nationalist areas, particularly west of the ban, remained static. And in fact, throughout the whole economic boom period, for example, unemployment in Straban remained in the upper part of the 20s and often hitting 30%. The effect of that was that whereas people's overall expectations were raised, there were new factories coming, there was great talk of new employment, new opportunities. They simply weren't there for the Catholic community. Probably the most important element of all was the, what they saw on television that related to the struggle in the southern states of America on civil rights. They saw that it was possible to effect reforms as a result of uh, demonstrations on the streets. So th there was then a growing Labour uh, Party. There was um, the... The Labour Party had been in government across the water, and uh, obviously that did have an effect. That, you know, they felt that from that, that was a sympathetic government, and therefore anything they would do at that time would obviously uh, be responded to by the Labour Party. So I think those things raised expectations to the point where they felt that something should be done, that, you know, and something should be done fairly quickly. 1947 was when free education up to and including university or college level was available to all those people basically who could pass the exams and there were seven years primary school seven years grammar school and three years college which was a total of 17 years and the first push for reform in Northern Ireland came exactly 17 years after the introduction of free education. And to my mind, that was when the small percentage of Catholics who within the education system could aspire to grammar school, whatever it was, 10% of the community, realized that all excuses had gone because here they were educated, qualified, many of them exceptionally well qualified and better qualified than their Protestant or Unionist counterparts, and they still couldn't get work at anything. Uh, so that made the position very clear for them. So it was these people who had benefited from the free education who became the leaders of who the very broad-based right. civil rights movement. Uh, and I think that if you look at that just from a, a social or sociological point of view, uh, John Hume and that whole generation uh, were the products of the 1947 Act. And Michael Farrell and Eamon McCann and myself were the next wave of people who took it for granted and did not say or feel the need to say thank you very much because we had no memory of when it didn't exist. So we were the next wave of people who did not have qualms about biting the hand that fed us. <laughs> Civil rights demands weren't all Captain O'Neill had to face, however. 
Ian Paisley, then on the fringes, was building his O'Neill Must Go campaign, and other hardliners were beginning to see his liberalism as treachery. They were issuing dire warnings of a Republican plot to the state, since the IRA discredited and disheartened after the 50s border campaign which ended in 62 was taking a political direction. Clifford Smith was one of those hardliners. I based the assessment largely on uh, the, the nationalist literature that I had read and then uh, within the Orange Institution there were uh, occasionally people who seemed to be well placed, who seemed to have access to uh, some unusual pieces of information that you wouldn't read in the newsletter or in the Irish news. Just a handful of people who seemed to have some what we would call general political intelligence of what was happening in Northern Ireland, uh, who seemed to have uh, access to sort of uh, the undercurrents of political life in Northern Ireland, who would have been able to comment uh, in some detail on, for example, the mysterious Scullion murder that took mm -hmm. place, or the more obvious and uh, horrendous murders in Malvern Street, and uh, th this kind of person would also have argued on the basis of information that young men in, in some of the Republican areas were being taken away to train and that there was some kind of attempt to get a new uh, campaign underway. And then uh, uh, all of this culminated in a meeting which was held in, uh, I can't date it properly now, but it was certainly some months in advance of the civil rights campaign hitting the headlines, in which we were given a very crisp but detailed analysis of an attempt that which would shortly be made to destabilize the Northern Ireland uh, government and the Northern Ireland state. And I remember in particular one uh, phrase which was used to describe this and to describe the uh, strategy that would be used because it seems to me even to this day to have been so accurate as to what actually happened we were told months in advance of the civil rights campaign that there would be an attempt to create the impression that Northern Ireland was governed by a discredited governed government. Northern Ireland was governed by a discredited government backed by a discredited police force. And uh, in a way that encapsulated uh, the campaign for the next two or three years. And that meeting in which these facts were laid before me uh, made a very uh, profound impression upon me. So it wasn't simply just a matter of reading Irish nationalist literature and saying, look, the boy was a rethinking the whole strategy. There was also other information coming forward, which could never be, in the nature of it, it could never be confirmed, except and only through the, the events themselves. So I, I find myself, by force of circumstances, that is by, because of the information that I had been given, because of the things that I had read for myself, because of my Protestant and evangelical convictions, my interest in Orangeism and in Young Unionism, I found myself by the force of all these events on what was called the right-wing or ultra or traditional unionist or hardline side. The Ulster Special Constabulary, an auxiliary force known as the B-Specials, also believed in the Republican plot, as a representative of their association explains. I think that one must remember that the civil rights movement was organized in I think, 1967 and became active in 1968. Now, if you cast your mind back to uh, 1962, when the, the end of the 1956-62 troubles, the IRA declared that they were not going to continue in a military operation. 
at, uh, at that time they did really study the situation carefully from a political angle and a progressive revolutionary angle too, I believe, because they produced what they termed was the uh, uh, Republican Education Manual in which they really dictated the course of events which led to the civil rights coming out. And I believe that the, uh, the civil rights movement and all the different movements at that time were really part of a coordinated plan. We were simply the victims. And who was planning it? The IRA? Uh, no, I think the Republican movement in, in, in general, not particularly the IRA. The IRA at that time, of course, were the, you might say, the old stickies, the old official IRA, sure. who were, uh, after 62, more motivated towards some political solution. So you feel that uh, they orchestrated what was to come. Do you think the people who became active knew that they were being orchestrated? The people who became active, you mean on the Republican side? On the civil rights side, civil rights. say, the no, movement for social justice. No, of course not. I don't think rights. that they all realised that they were being, um, you may say, manipulated. They certainly were being manipulated, in my opinion. Uh, for instance, we did have, I think at that time, the chairman of the Young Unionists in Queen's University was a member of civil rights. And we had different Protestants who were uh, supporters of the civil rights movement. Mm, for a the, brief time. For a brief time, then they opted out, yeah. So you saw then, and still see, the what emerged as the civil rights movement, a broad umbrella group that emerged yeah. as the civil rights movement, including various other things, as a subversive move rather than a genuine move for civil liberty. Yes, I think that uh, the civil rights movement were also being manipulated by whoever the godfathers are, are of these troubles. Michael Farrell, historian and civil rights activist, recalls the Republican role in the movement. You know, the Republican movement had rethought its position after the failure of the 50s border campaign and had decided to commit themselves to political and social and economic agitation. Uh, and it was as a, as a result of that that they got involved in the civil rights movement. And I, I know that there were arguments because I, I had the arguments with older Republicans who didn't like this type of activity, who, who said, you know, that they didn't... They didn't like agitating within the constitutional structure for change in Northern Ireland. They just wanted the state gone and they didn't want to, uh, to make any demands upon the state. Um, they were involved, the Republican movement was involved in the setting up of the Civil Rights Association, but so too were groups like the Campaign for Social Justice in Dungannon, which was a uh, sort of middle-class Catholic reformist organization which had absolutely no links with the IRA or with violence. Um, so too was the National Democratic Party, which was a sort of forerunner of the SDLP. Again, absolutely no question of links with violence, nor of any militant republicanism at all. They were basically looking for change within Northern Ireland. And also, again, a very middle-class uh, type of organization, which didn't want very fundamental change. There were elements from the, the labour movement and the trade union movement involved. Um, 
So there's a whole spectrum of groups involved. Uh, the Republican movement was only one of many uh, groups involved. And you can see that just against the, the political background of the 1960s, that there were so many different people agitating for change. They were one part of it. The first Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association march was in August 1968 from Coal Island to Dungannon. The area was chosen following Austin Curry's squat in Caledon earlier that year. In what was to become a common tactic, the Ulster Protestant volunteers staged a counter-demonstration at Dungannon, so the civil rights marchers were prevented by police from entering the market square. Jerry Fitt MP was incensed, but there was no serious trouble. The attendance included radical students from Queen's University. Michael Farrell. I had been chairperson of the Queen's University Labour Group and also the All Ireland Labour Student Organisation. And I was at the time of the, the, the civil rights marches began, I was chairperson of the Young Socialist Alliance in Belfast. And the membership of that was quite mixed. Uh, you know, would have been probably 50-50 Protestant Catholic. And our activity had largely been on issues like the Vietnam War, which was very much uh, an issue at the time. Uh, and in fact, for the first civil rights march from Coal Island to Dungannon, uh, we went to that, it was in the evening, on a Saturday evening, we went to that from Belfast where we had held a demonstration against the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia earlier that afternoon. The previous Saturday we'd held a demonstration against the war in Vietnam in Belfast. Um, other times during that year we'd, we'd been involved in anti-apartheid pickets and protests and CND protests. There's a whole spectrum of issues. Initially the, the civil rights issue in the North was only one of a spectrum of issues to us. Uh, and it was because of the way it developed and because of the police attack on the march in Derry on October the 5th that it really turned from just one of a number of issues into an all-engrossing issue. The October the 5th rally was organised locally, but under the umbrella of the Civil Rights Association. Following Unionist protests and threats of counter-demonstrations, it was banned by Storm and Home Affairs Minister Bill Craig. Eamon McCann was one of the organisers. The actual October the 5th march in Derry uh, was in theory run by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights uh, Association. In fact, the NICRA had very, very little to do with it and didn't actually understand the situation. They certainly had no idea what they were dealing with when they came to Derry to uh, uh, organise that march. Uh, and the march really was organised by a group of uh, three or four people, by Eamon Malach, uh, Finbar O'Doherty, myself, uh, Dermot McLenaghan, uh, and one or two others who simply got together and organised it. Uh, the crucial decision to march after, after William Craig had imposed a ban on demonstrations and uh, inside the walls in Derry or in the waterside, uh, a crucial decision to march was actually taken by the local branch of the Northern Ireland Labour Party, not by Nicola, uh, who had decided not to march, mm -hmm. or by Republicans, or by IRA people or anybody else. It was a Labour Party decision that forced the issue to take, and we weren't ill-intentioned at all uh, in that what we were about was uh, attempting to uh, create a new and non-sectarian style of politics in the North of Ireland, but we were doing it in uh, a way which has emerged subsequently, uh, displayed very little understanding of the realities of uh, sectarian politics in the North. I would certainly hope that in conducting this march in our city, that we will act in a responsible manner, demonstrating to the authorities that our intentions are to secure civil rights for the people of our cities and not to cause strife or bloodshed in our city.
rich and free freedom of assembly. We do not wish bloodshed or violence. It's widely accepted that Mr. Craig's ban had the effect of increasing the numbers of demonstrators. When they assembled, they were prevented by police from taking their planned route and moved instead along Duke Street, where police battened people including Jerry Fitt and the leader of the Nationalist Party, Eddie McAteer. A short while later, police baton charged the crowd. The police inspector in charge assaulted people violently and water cannon were used indiscriminately. The weekend's violence left 77 civilians and 11 policemen injured. Next day, Jerry Fitt MP and a British Labour MP, John Ryan, as well as the minister, Bill Craig, gave their views. In the city of Derry, there are very nearly 80% of the people opposed to unionism, and the people were at last getting up of their knees to assert and to fight for their own rights. The police, the, the government under William Craig, who is well known in Northern Ireland and indeed in England as the Lardner Burke of Northern Ireland, he in fact drafted in policemen from all over Northern Ireland. And it was quite obvious from the look on the policemen's faces that they were there not only to prevent a parade, but to beat up those taking part. I was leading the parade. As we approached the police cordon, it was quite obvious that I was a marked man because the Unionist Party detest and hit me because of how I have tried to show them up at Westminster. As before we even got to the cordon, a policeman ran over and hit me on the head with a baton. I was in the process of falling down, and he hit me a second time to make quite certain. I was then dragged into a police van, taken to the police station, where the policemen washed the blood off me so that it wouldn't be so noticeable. They took me to the hospital, and uh, I got three stitches. Since the partitioning of Ireland, the Unionist Party has been built on the system of discrimination. They cannot, in fact, afford to apply British standards of democracy because it would erode at their own edifice. The city of Derry is seething with discontent. The electoral system as it is operated in Derry is a negation of every concept of British democracy. To make it clear that I'm, I've never been one of those people who has been very critical of the police in this country, I do recognise the extreme difficulties in crowd control. But some of the methods I never hope to see again used in Great Britain. In particular, the use of the water cannon. The water cannon were used, in my view, quite indiscriminately. They were used in a provocative sense. They flooded houses. They, they used the nozzles to go through the windows of houses in order to do the maximum damage to property of people who weren't on the demonstration. I mean, the police had cordoned off the street and therefore caught in this fracas were people who lived in that street and innocent bystanders including some very young children who were hysterical, having been hosed. I was also very perturbed to see something which I am certain is against, is forbidden by the Home Office and is against the code of conduct of the police. This is reported by responsible journalists in The Observer, namely the use by the police of battens to strike demonstrators in the, in the area of their testicles. I'm quite satisfied that police used no more force than was absolutely necessary and showed a great deal of restraint. Indeed, I've been watching television films and it has borne out the reports that I've got that the police themselves did not attack until they were attacked by the demonstrators. The events in Derry proved to be the catalyst which brought the movement onto a world stage. The protest gathered momentum throughout the north and in Derry itself, people began to build their own organisation. Ivan Cooper. But we had the march on the 5th of October 
and on the 9th of October we assembled uh, in the City Hotel in Derry to elect a Derry Citizens Action Committee. Uh, I was elected Chairman of that committee, uh, John Hume was elected Vice Chairman. We decided that because Derry was a city and because it, to a large extent it symbolised the injustice which existed in Northern Ireland, that we could build, build a very strong weapon in that city. And we decided that that needed a very special committee and hence the Derry Citizens Action Committee. The major political figure to emerge from the movement is John Hume. I see 1968 as a complete new departure in the sense that um, <clears throat> the civil rights movement ushered in a completely new approach um, to, to the problems of the North. There had been, for example, an IRA campaign in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and they all didn't just fail, they failed miserably. Uh, to try and change the situation. What was new and different about the civil rights movement was, of course, that it was totally committed to non-violence. And here in particular in the streets of Derry, where it became a mass movement within a matter of weeks, uh, from the small march of October the 5th to the mass march in the middle of November. And in that short period of time, um, brought about immediate changes that no one could have foreseen. Uh, a month previously. Uh, for example, within a matter of weeks, Derry Corporation, which to those of us growing up in Derry, was in the gerrymandered city, uh, had seemed impregnable, was brought down, was replaced by the Derry Commission, which transformed the whole housing scene in the city. That was all brought about in a matter of weeks. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, that approach, the very nature of it, because we were so nonviolent, because we were prepared not to retaliate even when visibly provoked, uh, and when that was seen in the television screens of the world, it produced mass international reaction in our favour. Bernadette Makaliski, then Bernadette Devlin, believes the nonviolent tactic was doomed. We went out on the nonviolent demonstrations, and we had seen them. We had seen them in, in America, we'd seen Martin Luther King and various people sitting down the street and getting beaten up or water cannoned, and we thought we could do the same. In fact, it was quite a number of years afterwards when I had been several times to America, and because of my own interest in the American Civil Rights Movement, that I discovered that nonviolence was not something that you took into your head as a notion when you went out on the street. The black civil rights movement had devoted a great deal of time, very much like the anti-war movement and the Greenham Common women's movement, spent a great deal of time discussing the realities of non-violent tactics and the consequences of them and the difficulties of them. We actually thought you just went out and did it, and we went out and did it, basically until individually and collectively people who had not discussed this as a tactic or as a method of organisation literally and very understandably got fed up sitting on the ground getting their heads beaten in and having stones thrown on them and one after another just decided to throw a few back and the few grew. Well I was there 
uh, to put it mildly, and it was definitely, as far as I was concerned, a very deep-seated philosophy. What I accept is, of course, that, uh, and I know, for example, in the streets of Derry, uh, we were so committed and conscious about the need for nonviolence that our campaign was staged in order to make sure, for example, or the first meeting after the October the 5th was a sit-down in the Guildhall Square, followed then by a march a few weeks later of the, of the uh, committee only over the original route, followed then a few weeks later by the mass march of all the people. And that was deliberately planned and staged in order that we would control. And during that period, we went to great lengths to train people in crowd control and in everything else. Uh, so that there was a very deliberate and, and, and highly organized effort went into uh, ensuring nonviolence. Um, now, I think that, that that caught the imagination in a very big way. And of course, other areas moved as well to, 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 to express their solidarity and support. But I don't think the same planning and thought went into it. And in fact, it's when the um, civil rights movement left the streets of Derry uh, that violence actually started, when you think of the march in Burntollet and then Newry. Outside Derry, unrest grew. In Belfast, students, enraged by the state's response to marches, founded People's Democracy, a radical militant group which was to play a crucial role. In Armagh in November, Marchers clashed with supporters of Ian Paisley and Major Ronald Bunting. British government pressure on Captain O'Neill to deliver reforms intensified, but so did Unionist opposition, until in December the Prime Minister appealed for support in his famous Ulster at the Crossroads speech. What kind of Ulster do you want? A happy and respected province? in good standing with the rest of the United Kingdom or a place continually torn apart by riots and demonstrations and regarded by the rest of Britain as a political outcast? As always in a democracy, the choice is yours. I will accept whatever your verdict may be. If it is your decision that we should live up to the words, Ulster is British, which is part of our creed, then my services will be at your disposal to do what I can. But if you should want a separate, inward-looking, selfish and divided Ulster, then you must seek for others to lead you along that road. For I cannot and will not do it. Despite his appeal for party unity, Captain O'Neill was forced, within a few days of the crossroads speech, to dismiss his Home Affairs Minister, Bill Craig. Though he was enjoying a brief spell of public support and a truce with the Civil Rights Association, the threat from hardline unionism was underlined by Ian Paisley in a speech at Larne as he welcomed home the 1914 UVF gun-running ship the Clyde Valley. This ship defied the authorities and Britain before when it brought in the guns. And I'd like to say that today...
tried to protect her. And the, the other fellas came around with their clubs and their stones and they battered her. It was awful. And then there's a man in sight up at the gate standing. We were starting across the road and we started firing battles and stones and Hysterical marchers describing the ambush on demonstrators at Burntollet on the 4th of January 1969 during the People's Democracy March from Belfast to Derry. Michael Farrell was one of the organisers. I should say first about the march that the, uh, the organisation of that march, the whole civil rights movement was very influenced by the black civil rights movement in America. The first march from Colón to Dungannon uh, it has remained in my mind very firmly ever since. One of the speakers, a young Republican from Derry, from the Derry House and Action Committee, shouted very passionately when we were stopped by the police, we are the white Negroes of Northern Ireland, we are second-class citizens, just like the black people in America. And he was expressing a consciousness that I think was quite widespread in the nationalist community, not just in the, the more politicised elements like us and the young socialists. But the, the community, nationalist community as a whole had been very influenced by the black civil rights struggle in America. So the positions very parallel. We in turn, as I said earlier, we in the people's democracy, the young socialists and the people's democracy, identified very much with the black civil rights struggle, even to the extent of seeing the, the divisions and the different organizations in the civil rights movement, seeing them in terms of the, the divisions in the American movement. So we identified with, with SNCC and the more militant elements. And the March to Derry was modelled quite specifically on a march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama in 1965, uh, which was a long cross-country march, which was much criticised by some of the more moderate elements in the civil rights movement at the time, which was attacked by the police as it set off and very viciously and brutally attacked, and which had the effect of forcing the intervention of the federal government in America and bringing about the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the point being that the march, by the length of time it lasted, by going right across country, it mobilised people in a whole lot of different areas, in areas that had been untouched by organisation, by black organisation uh, before that. It focused enormous amount of international attention on the situation in Alabama, and it forced the federal government to intervene. Now, we intended the March to Derry to do exactly that. We intended it to go across country. It would last for four days. It would attract an enormous amount of media attention, well, enormous in Northern Ireland terms, which it did. It went through areas that had been untouched by the civil rights movement before that, and it mobilized people there. The violence of the state forces attacking us, well, of, of loyalist vigilantes attacking us with the collusion of the police, which is very similar to the situation in America, where white Ku Klux Klan supporters attacked the, the Selma March with the assistance of state troopers. Um, that demonstrated the sectarian nature of the state and the inability of the Northern Ireland government, inability or unwillingness, it didn't matter, to confront the sectarianism of their own supporters and to do anything about the situation. And we thought it would force the British government to intervene over their heads and to grant the demands of the civil rights movement. So did we you want to provoke it, it? No, we didn't want to provoke anything uh, because there was nothing provocative in what we were doing. We were a bunch of completely non-violent uh, demonstrators. I mean, it's not that we were pacifists, but it was a 
tactical question. We absolutely decided there's going to be no violence from our side. Uh, there's going to be no nothing that loyalists could see in any way as provocative. There was an argument over some people who wanted to carry a tricolour and we voted against that. Uh, the march simply called for the civil rights demands and also called for, which was our agenda, somewhat more radical demands were calling for uh, not just fair allocation of jobs but jobs for all and houses for all. We uh, we were drawing attention to the appalling standard of rural housing for both Catholic and Protestant in, in Mid-Ulster. Uh, the fact that we were attacked was not due to any provocation on our part unless to demand justice within Northern Ireland was to be provocative. Maybe it was, but then that's the, the fault of the state. Ian Paisley and Major Ronald Bunting had warned the students not to march through Loyalist areas and had called for support from Loyalists, as they outlined at a news conference that week. Uh, you are by implication there saying that the counter-demonstrations of our people cause violence. This is not true. Because this man's from Era, he's bound to say that. Yes, he don't go back home again if he didn't. Would <laughs> 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 you be attempting to stop the march in any way, though, Major Bunting? Uh, well, now, William, you know me well enough, and I have given uh, a request to the loyal citizens of Ulster, and thank God they've responded. I thank you very much, <laughs> indeed, to hinder it and hurry it. And I think they've hindered it and I think you would agree, to a certain extent, they've hired it. The Burntollet March is seen by many in civil rights as a turning point, the stage at which the militants took over. Kevin Boyle, who was in PD, has mixed feelings about it and about the march in Newry, which followed. The first real violence that uh, erupted was um, after the Burntollet March, that I recall in any serious, uh, was the Burntollet March itself. Um, I think, in retrospect, I, I regret that demonstration. In fact, uh, the historical record will show that um, Bernadette Devlin and I were called to Stormont by, um, uh, who was then the Home, Sec the, the, the Home Affairs Minister, a chap called Long, and uh, Captain Long, an uh, affable uh, um, man indeed. Um, and he suggested that you know, the demonstration should be postponed and gave various reasons that there was going to be difficulty in protecting it and we agreed to consider that. Um, but in fact we were overruled and the demonstration went, went on. I'm making no issue of that but I, I think the point is that the vast majority of people on that demonstration had no, were, were not co-trailing deliberately. I mean for a lot of people, uh, the young people involved in it, they didn't, they didn't really understand the dynamics of um, the territory issues in Northern Ireland. Now that seems hard to believe now, but it, it was the truth at the time. There may well have been individuals who joined it who understood very well uh, the, the, the territorial dynamics and the, 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 the tensions that would arise, but I certainly did not. I mean, I expected a few Paisleyites here and there to um, um, shout and maybe you know, uh, object to the marches as they did in, within Belfast itself, but I did not expect the systematic uh, um, uh, blocking uh, of the march and, and the assault on it uh, uh, that we saw at Burntullet. And the evident incapacity of the RUC to think other than in 
essentially majority terms. That, you know, they had no concept of uh, that there was a right to demonstrate and the demonstrators were acting within the law and so forth. It was simply a matter of responding to um, uh, what unionist politicians wanted and what the local normally Protestant majority community wanted in those demonstrations. So that was the first violence, really, that I recall. The only violence that I ever really saw uh, coming from the civil rights uh, groups and civil rights activists and people who came on demonstrations, ordinary people, was uh, when they got provoked, when they were provoked, or, or when, when they sort of um, you know, lost their tempers. As in Uri. As in Uri in 69. Mm -hmm. um, a situation where people uh, regarded you know, they're, they're, they're themselves as, as free to march in their own town and suddenly find, uh, you know, police land rovers and uh, trucks pulled across the road and stopping them marching in their own town. And, uh, I mean, our response to that was not to, um, uh, to prov provoke or to propose assault on those police vans, but to have people sit down and try to um, defuse it that way. Uh, personally, I always took the position from the start that, uh, and, and it was an honest position, that I was a civil writer, pure and true. That was all. I had no larger agenda um, on um, civil rights as a stalking horse for um, some um, project for a united Ireland or a republican Ireland or whatever. I was genuinely a person who believed in um, that, that there should be equality. And, res and I respected the right of the majority, and still do, to determine uh, the question of what state Northern Ireland belongs to. Jerry Fitt, who had been an ardent civil rights activist, sees the Newry March as the point at which he became disenchanted. I saw, and I'm certainly I wouldn't want to mention it because people do make mistakes in their life, but I saw some people who are very respectable lawyers and doctors and solicitors at the present time who were then students at Queen's University, deliberately provoking the police and shouting, burn their vans, burn their vans, burn their vans, throw them into the canal. And I remember standing with my back against the wall and saying, this is not civil rights anymore. This is not civil rights. This is all sort of degenerated into something else. If I had thought for a single second that the civil rights movement and its beginnings and its demands was going to lead to the activities of the Schenkel butchers or the killing of so many innocent people by both sides of the parliament, by the IRA and by the UVF and the UDA. I wouldn't have had anything to do with civil rights if I had thought that that was going to be the natural consequence of the beginning of a civil rights movement. As the fragmentation of the Civil Rights Association began to show, so the divisions in unionism deepened. Under pressure within and without his party, Terence O'Neill called an election in February. I think if I hadn't had the resistance from Ted Heath and Harold Wilson that I did have, I would have retired and I would not have held that last election. But once they both expressed absolute horror at the idea of my going, and um, you'll see in my little book, where Ted he threw up his arms and said, you mustn't go, Terence. If you do, you'll be succeeded either by a crook or a lunatic. And I'm not going to tell you who they were, but uh, you can guess yourself. Um, 
The situation had become impossible, really, and that last election was a desperate throw to see if I could unseat 12 extremists, and I was only able to unseat three. The election solved nothing for Captain O'Neill as the pressures were kept up by Ian Paisley and other hardliners. On the other side, civil rights activists had been elected. John Hume says it was a deliberate decision to move off the streets. Those of us at the time who were in the leadership of the civil rights movement felt that we had taken the, the non-violent protest in the streets a certain distance and that, uh, and at that stage, the uh, authorities uh, initiated some major changes and promised more. And uh, uh, we felt that the time had come to take people into, I know I felt this, to take people into the uh, democratic process again in the new atmosphere. Uh, given all the alternatives that faced us, I think it was quite clearly the wisest course of action. It's not a question of allowing anything to drift. I think that was a very, very clear view at the time and was quite clearly also supported by the vast majority of the people as the results of the period show. Also elected or re-elected were Jerry Fitt, Austin Curry, Paddy Devlin, Ivan Cooper and Paddy O'Hanlon who were to found the SDLP with John Hume the following year. Eamon McCann stood as a socialist in Derry and Bernadette Devlin and Michael Farrell were among eight People's Democracy candidates who were unsuccessful. In April, after intense bargaining and machinations among the various strands of nationalism, Bernadette Devlin was chosen as a unity candidate for a mid-Ulster by-election. People of mid-Ulster, we have finally started to overcome. She was to be the last unity candidate in Mid-Ulster. At the time, it was thought her election was a milestone, but after a flurry of intense interest in everything the youngest MP in Westminster did or thought or wore or ate, it petered out. Like a lot of other things, I think its total relevance was purely in terms of making people aware that this place existed and for a short time what was going on in it. Uh, and for me, an education as to how limited that is. Uh, myself, I found that Parliament, A, has very little power, B, is content to have very little power, and, and C, it's a very dishonest place. In April too, time ran out for Terence O'Neill. Water pipelines serving Belfast were bombed and blamed on the IRA. But it later emerged this was the work of loyalists. Already humiliated by a poor showing in the February election against his arch-rival Ian Paisley, Terence O'Neill had been further weakened 
by the defections of Brian Faulkner and Major Chichester Clark, and the bombings were the last straw. He resigned. As far as I was concerned, I had to go, um, and um, I was almost uh, grateful to lay down the impossible burdens. Uh, I was saying earlier on that I was under um, threat of Protestant assassination, and um, I never knew whether somebody pulled a, a bullet uh, or not. I um, used to go to my office different ways and different days, but otherwise there was no real protection for me. But once they discovered they couldn't easily assassinate me, if that's true, that's what I was told by the special branch, then, instead of doing that, uh, they blew up the um, water supply and they tried to blow up the electricity supply. So I was, in effect, blown out of office, yes. Ian Paisley had got what he wanted. The following year, he would not only be elected to Stormont, but also to Westminster, and he would form an opposition Unionist party. The Unionist monolith was shattered. Clifford Smith believes Ian Paisley's was one part in that wrecking. The civil rights campaign... Uh, assisted uh, uh, in breaking the Unionist monolith. The way that I would want to put it now was that uh, uh, Ulster Protestant and Unionist society, however you want to differentiate it, if you want to use those terms, if you want to say the British and Ireland, are uh, an extremely fragmented elements. And uh, it has been the great achievement of the Unionist party to bring them together so, in fact, what the civil rights movement in company with the British government, which worked very hard to smash the Unionist monolith, after all, that was one of Willie Whitenose's statements, we have to break the Unionist monolith, what, what they did was that they, they opened up a cleavage which was already there and which the Unionist Party had managed to mask for a long period of time. Um, of course, Paisley's role in this was crucial as well because he, uh, it was his view that the Unionist Party would collapse under pressure of what he perceived to be an Irish Republican conspiracy. And a lot of us, of course, were fully in agreement with that analysis that we faced an Irish nationalist conspiracy, which uh, was to some degree masterminded by the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, which had as its ultimate objective the achievement of a unified Ireland and a unified Catholic Ireland at that. Um, so uh, Mr Paisley also played his part in breaking up the, the, the Unionist monolith. But there's a factor in this which mustn't be uh, missed, and that is that the leadership of liberal unionism was, from the point of view of many of us, philosophically and morally bankrupt. That is, they had no coherent uh, uh, ideological or philosophical position of their own. They had simply tried to import into Northern Ireland uh, southeast of England liberal values they were encouraged to do so by the media and by civil servants and the rest and uh, many of them were entirely cynical in the end of course the unionists split on on their perceptions of the civil rights movement the O'Neillite unionists said this is a genuine movement uh, if we meet their legitimate demands they will go away and leave us in peace and we can get on with whitewash painting the Folk Museum and opening the Queen Elizabeth II Bridge and the rest, whereas the hardline unionists amongst whom I was one said that the civil rights is simply a stalking horse for a much more dangerous phenomenon which 
is waiting in the wings, namely our conviction that the civil rights movement was a a Trojan horse behind which or within which one would find eventually the physical force tradition re-emerging. The civil rights movement claims credit for breaking the unionist monolith, but only because unionism proved too intractable to give nationalists equal rights. Austin Curry. The, the central question which was posed to both the unionist government and to unionists was posed uh, at a meeting in Cool Island, of all places, uh, in 1967, when Jerry Fitt led a delegation of Labour MPs to Northern Ireland, which included Paul Rose and Stan Orme, Morris Miller, and I think one or two others. And uh, the point was made from the platform in Cool Island, and I think I can quote, If we are British citizens, then we demand the same rights for the people of Coal Island as for the people of Coventry, the same rights for the people of Dungannon as for the people of Doncaster, the same rights for the people of Belfast as for the people of Birmingham. Now, that was an absolutely central slogan which developed throughout the civil rights campaign and it posed a question for unionism which unionism was incapable of answering. Because after all, they were the people who said we were British. We didn't say we were British. They were the people who said we were British. And therefore, if we were British, why couldn't we have the same rights in relation to one man, one vote, etc., etc., as had other British subjects? And that was, as I say, the central, crucial question that was posed of unionists and of the British government uh, and it was their inability to answer that question uh, that was the strength of the civil rights movement. That, the posing of that question was of course central to unionism as well. Uh, the question there was can unionism live with justice? Can unionism continue to exist uh, and continued to be top dog uh, in, a, in a political system where every citizen uh, has the same rights. Now, um, the, the answering of that question uh, uh, should really not have drawn us into a violent situation. Um, it did so because unionism was incapable of answering uh, that question, that unionism was incapable of living with, with justice, that the, the, the system upon which unionism was based presupposed that you would have people who were more equal than other people, uh, that a majority here should at least be given the impression uh, that uh, they were better placed um, that they were superior uh, to the minority community. And of course, when their uh, position, their privileged position, their relatively privileged position was threatened, they responded in the only way that uh, they knew how to respond, which was by, by, uh, by violence, uh, state violence or otherwise. It's argued that had unionism responded differently to the civil rights demands, 
all that followed could have been averted. Bill Craig doesn't accept that. If it hadn't been housing or unemployment, other social reasons or political reasons would have been found to stimulate violence. The issues that they selected were ones that were close to the people, but they were issues that were being tackled. Northern Ireland was, in my time, in developing building houses in record numbers. The only thing that was holding us up was a shortage of cash. Jobs were being created uh, at a rate that uh, the resources of Northern Ireland were being stretched. Uh, and I've always had the view that those who were masterminding this campaign were afraid if they didn't make the most of their opportunity in the late 60s, they would have lost the battle. Terence O'Neill also believed everything was changing. The Nationalist Party, he said, was becoming more involved in Stormont and developments would have been possible but were arrested by hardline unionism. This was beginning to break down. I mean, Austin Curry uh, was the chap who arrived uh, while the Nationalist banner was still waving and he started uh, participating in debates and making intelligent uh, contributions which uh, had been largely missing before. And then, of course, after my last election, when a lot of civil rights boys got in, including people like John Hume, um, the whole situation changed completely, and, and they took full part in everything that was going on. This is one of the tragedies, that, that all these old things were breaking down. Uh, but no, the whole thing had to be bust up and uh, go back to square one. Ivan Cooper believes that Captain O'Neill was incapable of dealing with political reality, such as the hardliners in his party. It's obvious that O'Neill was an extremely weak man. From memory, he only fought one election in his entire parliamentary career. Uh, the cut and thrust of politics, I'm afraid, is not about fighting one election in 20-odd years. He uh, was a weak man who was incapable of carrying through reform. But the tribalism under which Stormont existed made it impossible for reform to be granted easily. And that's why violence f followed on the uh, coattails of uh, the civil rights movement, because every single reform was like going to the dentist, and he wasn't extracting a front tooth, he was extracting uh, one at the very back. Uh, so they didn't give in easily. The unionists don't give an inch, and that has been their policy right throughout, and still remains their policy today. Bill Craig, in Ivan Cooper's view, exploited events for his own ends. Well, of course, Bill Craig saw the civil rights movement as an opportunity for himself uh, to, to jockey for the leadership of the Unionist Party. And basically what he was trying to project was the image of a strong man who would deal firmly with uh, this uh, Republican-inspired campaign. And it was a damn good issue on which any Unionist uh, to... to uh, have a go at, at, at the leadership of the party. At a personal level and at a political level, I think it's a tragedy that Craig has departed from the political scene in Northern Ireland because despite his mistakes with the civil rights movement, despite uh, his mad actions and in inspecting stormtroopers and all the rest of it, uh, Craig was one of the few thinkers in Ulster Unionism. And he is a man, in my opinion, if he were there today, uh, and had he got grassroots support, would be capable of leading unionism in Northern Ireland. Uh, I think it's a tragedy to see that he has disappeared from, from the Northern Ireland political scene. He was a man who held his beliefs very profoundly, 
But one thing which I will say about him, and that is that uh, at a period of time he realised that it was futile to argue for the return of the old Stormont regime, and he himself was prepared to talk about some form of power sharing. Uh, and that, of course, meant uh, that he was chopped uh, by Ulster Unionism, by grassroots Ulster Unionism. So, in effect, the same thing happened to him that he had earlier helped to do to Terence O'Neill. Yes, and of course, Brian Faulkner uh, went down the same road, and Jimmy Chichester Clark went down the same road, etc., etc., etc. But at some point in time, the Ulster Protestants are going to have to ask themselves where they are going. Through all this, the pace in the streets had quickened. In April, there was serious rioting in Derry. It began with clashes between civil rights demonstrators and Paisleyites and developed into serious conflict between the RUC and the Bogsiders. Afterwards, there were allegations of police brutality and nationalist confidence in the forces of law and order plummeted. Michael Farrell. At all times, the, the initiative, the violence, the initiating of violence, came from the state forces. I mean, there had been violence when we were attacked in the march to Derry. The night before the march finally arrived in Derry, the police invaded the Bogside and broke up houses there. In April 1969, they invaded the Bogside again and they killed a man called Sam Devenny in his house. Um, in July 1969, they killed a man called Francis McCluskey and Dungiven. Uh, deaths had been building up and yet the civil rights movement, including us on the left, had said, no, we don't want to respond with violence to this. You know, we want to continue to campaign the way we've done, militantly, uh, using direct action, but we will not initiate any violence. And that was, that was attainable. That, that could have been carried on. Though, obviously, people in the nationalist community were beginning to feel very angry about the, the level of violence that was being visited upon them. The Civil Rights Association and People's Democracy called off street demonstrations because of the danger of rioting and sectarianism. But the crisis was to come with the loyalist marching season. Derry erupted on the day of the Apprentice Boys Parade in August and the Battle of the Bogside began. Police baton charged the crowd manning the Bogside barricades at William Street and using an armoured car they entered the area. Rioting, battening and the use of CS gas ensued. Protestants who followed the police into the Bogside stoned Catholic houses and threw missiles at locals over the heads of the police. The state of siege lasted for two days until the British Army was brought in on the 14th. We are in here. The police, the base stations are right out and the army are between the two of us. And that is the way we want it. And that is the way we will keep it. Therefore, what we want to do now is show that the people, British Army, cannot just walk around here. By then, trouble had flared in West Belfast. Demonstrations had been staged to take the heat off Derry. But in the most significant events since the 5th of October, sectarian violence developed in the Falls District. Protestants burned down Catholic homes in Bombay Street and Conway Street as police and B-specials failed to stop them. And there was shooting. The opposition, Protestant people, started to throw the stones and petrol bombs right what up. What time was this? About half past two in the afternoon. And it kept on going all 
afternoon up to about seven o'clock. We hadn't a policeman to protect us. When, when did no. the troops arrive? The troops didn't arrive till um, about seven o'clock at least. Seven or eight, I think it was. And we were left holding the baby all the time for to fight ourselves. No defence of any kind except stones and what we had not what we could find in the streets. Next thing that happened was the people in the opposition said they are supplied with the guns from the B specials. Were they using guns? They were using guns. We hadn't a gun at all. And uh, we managed to get four guns unauthorised from our people. And if I hadn't had those guns, the whole place would have been taken over by did you, did you use these guns? They did use those guns, yes. But it was more or less to frighten them off. But what happened then? Did they actually come into the area? They came into the area lots of times, but we were able to chase them off again, and with the shots of the guns, it made them fly off again. Clifford Smith, like many unionists, refuses to accept that version. There is actually a perception of what happened in August 1969, which has never really been properly published or explored, and it's the perception of the ordinary loyalists in the Shanklin elsewhere which is that there was much more use of weaponry and much more violence in August 69 than has ever been publicly acknowledged, and that, in fact, there were more people killed on the nationalist side than has ever been publicly acknowledged. In other words, that numbers of bodies were actually spirited away and that uh, the figures of, for the dead was actually higher than, than we were led to believe, and that uh, there would be an element within unionism and orangeism and loyalism in Northern Ireland who would say that the notion, the IRA, uh, we ran away, that, ho that that whole thing was a creation of some element within the, re the Republican and nationalist community for purposes or purposes unknown. The, the, the memory that remains with me is the, the, the conviction on, the, on our side that, as I say, there was more weaponry used than has ever been publicly acknowledged, and the, the belief that uh, the Protestant community in the Shankill Road was under threat of invasion from the falls. And if you talk to the wee, humble, loyalist people, even today you'll discover that a, a man who's regarded as a very famous and well-known personality is still held responsible for those folk, by those folk for all that happened. And if you press them, they will say, the trouble in Belfast was caused by Jerry Fitt when he said, that in order to take the heat off the bogsiders, it was decided to stage a riot in Belfast. And uh, it, uh, uh, Mr. Fitt, is, or Lord Fitt, has never been forgiven. Those events in Belfast are widely believed to have been the birth of the provisional IRA. Austin Curry. As a result of the activities of uh, Paisley in particular, followed by what happened in, in Belfast in, in 1969, where Catholic streets or streets where Protestants were leaving were, were burned down, and where you had, and I, I can remember vividly, the, the real fear of people, not only in Belfast, but in places like Dungannon. Uh, indeed, it's, it's often forgotten that the first refugees uh, down to the Gormanstown army camp, in fact, came from Dungannon. So there was real fear particularly of the B-Specials uh, throughout many areas in the North, and there was no way in which uh, there was confidence in the ability of the RUC to protect them. And it was in these circumstances uh, that the Provisional IRA was born, first of all as, as a defensive organisation. Uh, my own belief is that uh, 
the major responsibility lies there with the British government. Um, and uh, as we've seen so many times, the British government didn't act until it was forced to act. And when it acted, it was a matter of too little, too late. Uh, in 1969, uh, when the British army was forced to intervene, a number of us recognised that the British military presence had to be accompanied by the British political presence, because there was no way that the British government was going to have the British army under the control of a, a Stormont government. Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the British government did not in '69 suspend Stormont. They waited until after Bloody Sunday in 1972 when, again, they were forced to act. And I think that the history of Northern Ireland since '69. Uh, might have been a lot different if the British uh, Labour government at that time had taken, had gone the whole way and suspended Stormont then, rather than three years later, when the situation uh, had developed, uh, where, when the provisional IRA had already come into existence, uh, firstly as a defensive organisation uh, and then as an offensive organisation. I think the whole history of that period and since might have been different if that action had been taken in 69 instead of in 72. One effect of the summer riots was the establishment of the Hunt Committee to investigate the security forces. It recommended the disbandment of the B-Specials. We don't think that the Special Constabulary ought to have been disbanded. Uh, we do believe that, that had we been organised in a different way, we would have been a most effective force. The cutting off of the Special Constabulary just like that and reforming new units such as the Ulster Defence Regiment and the RUCR was a very, very bad mistake. Instead of taking over the Special Constabulary, reforming them as a whole and opening the ranks uh, to enlistment of, of Roman Catholics. In fact, Roman Catholics were never barred from joining the, the Special Constabulary. Um, that force would have continued and would have been still the effective deterrent today, what it was prior to 1970. Events also had a profound effect and would have serious repercussions south of the border. People were rushing to Dublin, seeking aid, protection and guns and the Taoiseach Jack Lynch had broadcast to the nation on the night of the 13th of August. Irishmen in every part of this island have made known their concern at these events. This concern is heightened by the realisation that the spirit of reform and intercommunal cooperation has given way to the forces of sectarianism and prejudice. Irish government attempts to have a United Nations peacekeeping force sent in failed and so began the process of trying to be given a say in the North's affairs. The civil rights movement was in disarray, and the slide into violence continued. Twenty years and nearly 3,000 deaths later, how do leaders of the civil rights movement view it? Hey, I am responsible for what I did myself and for the philosophy that I preached. I'm not responsible for people who reject my philosophy. My philosophy was total commitment to nonviolence right down the line. Uh, I have to point out, it's a society that we grew up in in the North, 
was a society that had failed to respond to the normal politics of the situation, where the injustices were extreme. In this city alone, uh, I was involved in self-help, not in politics, when I went into the civil rights movement. I was involved in a self-help housing movement where we were building our own houses for the people. In 1967, the corporation built no houses at all. 10% of the city was homeless. So the injustices were there. It was inevitable, if there was no response to normal political means, that people were going to have to, uh, if they were going to correct those. So the people who, who, uh, who planned the gerrymandered uh, situation that existed in the north of Ireland were the people who made, in, 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 in a sense, subsequent events inevitable. What we are responsible for is the methods that we choose to deal with that situation, the methods that I chose to deal with it and, and, uh, and, and literally preached uh, at the time, were strict nonviolence. Other people, I mean, I confronted people on the streets who were arguing violence and who were engaging in violence. Other people organized against us to promote violence. They must bear responsibility for the consequences of their actions. I was certainly aware when I was being brought up that, 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 that the Northern Ireland was a geographical location in which I lived and that my family was there, but I didn't sense in any connection with it, with the, with the state um, or with the, the government of any kind. And I think that uh, the major change is that that, that old ascendancy is gone. Um, I mean, even central symbols of it, its economic reflection in um, uh, Harland and Wolf shipyard, uh, um, which was um, effectively um, in, in was wholly dominated by a Protestant workforce, if the largest source of, um, of industrial employment, is now, we are told, to be no longer a state enterprise, to be privatized, uh, another company, just like any other company, and in fact will probably be owned by a foreign, uh, foreign owner. Um, the the equality process, I think, is, is, is making headway. It is true that it is the nationalist population is still um, twice and more times unlikely to be unemployed than the unionist or Protestant population, but that's because of the impact of history. I think there is a, a clear agenda uh, now to try to uh, confront discrimination on, on all levels. Th th that, that seems to me, looking now back, as, as the major change. People ask me, was it worth it, considering all of the deaths and everything else that, uh, that has happened? And of course, uh, uh, nothing is, is, is worth the, uh, uh, worth the loss of, of a, a single life. But the formation of the Northern Ireland Housing Executive, which was as a direct result of the civil rights campaign, uh, that was a very, very significant reform and it means that today there are very very few complaints about discrimination in housing in Northern Ireland and the whole electoral system has changed the introduction of proportional representation meant by and large gerrymandering has disappeared and you have one man one vote and each vote of equal value today uh, discrimination in employment uh, still exists unfortunately but steps uh, have been taken to, to, to remedy that. Uh, discrimination in employment in the public sector doesn't exist to uh, any extent to what it was like uh, 20 years ago. I think those were all 
valuable reforms and valuable contributions to the, uh, particularly uh, in relation to the minority community in Northern Ireland. Uh, and so my, my answer has to be yes, it, it was worthwhile, but I do have regrets.